When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 21st of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. There is hope this morning that fighting in Gaza could actually stop and stop for up to five days so that vital aid could reach what the United Nations now calls hell on earth. The five-day pause would be in return for the release of Israeli hostages, including nine-year-old Emily Hand. Israel has not yet committed to a deal, and Hamas says a truce is close. Um, in, in that moment, I was just thrown back into the nightmare. And believe me, it's a nightmare. If you all have families and kids, just imagine one day... One of them's gone. Just gone. You don't know where she is. You don't know you don't know what suffering she's going, whether she's been fed, watered, if she has a place to go toilet even. She probably doesn't even have a toothbrush or a toothpaste. The basics of life, the simple basics of life. Food, water, hygiene. But not only that, just the sheer terror of a nine-year-old girl down in those dark tunnels, never seeing the light of day. But sheer terror, panic, every hour of every day. She must be saying every day, where's my daddy? Where's my daddy? Why isn't he coming to save me? He must be going through her head all the time. Where's daddy? And that's what I'm living through. That's what we're all living through. It's a nightmare. An absolute nightmare. We pray that we get, we get, we get them back. I pray I'll get Emily back. I don't know what condition she's going to be in, but she's going to be broken, very broken, mentally and physically. And we will have to fix that. It's going to take a long time to fix that. But that's what we've got to do.
and we will do it no matter how long it takes. Tom Hand, Emily Hand's father, speaking yesterday. Emotional and indeed dramatic stuff and very hard not to be moved listening to what Tom Hand has to say about the ordeal he and his family are going through at the moment. Let's speak now to the AIM2 leader and founder, Patricio Bean, a TD for Mead West, who's on the line with us. And I suppose we're seven weeks into this war, Patricio Bean. Today, we're looking at the prospect of a five-day truce and indeed the release of hostages. As things go in this conflict, this is a pretty good day, isn't it? Any news on um, hostages being released is is, is most welcome. It must be absolutely horrific for any family member to go through this last number of weeks knowing that their loved one is a health hostage and and not knowing what conditions that they're in and and not knowing what's happening to them. It's a it's a form of torture that you know I, I couldn't imagine uh, you know happening, and um, it's just incredible when mm. you look at the carnage that's uh, happening on the streets of Gaza on a daily basis. The death toll now is over thirteen thousand people. Five and a half thousand of those are children. Three and a half thousand <clears throat> are women, and you know we're, we're, if if you look at the level of injuries that's happening, it's it's estimated that there are thirty thousand people who've been significantly injured. Uh, in the conflict so far there. And, you know, we forget about the, 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 the rest of the, of the yep. damage that's being done to the area. Um, you know, th- there's 6,000 people missing currently mm. uh, in the region. And they reckon that there are thousands of, of homes that have been just completely flattened. 43,000 housing units completely disappeared. 25 hospitals no longer in use because of the attacks. 52 health centres gone out of use. And ambulances have been targeted. And in my view, there's no doubt that these attacks on civilian locations, you know, they are they're war crimes. And they're absolutely wrong. They, they need to be pushed back in, in the strongest possible fashion by the international community. And, and there, not only is there a humanitarian cost to this, but in my view, Israel is having the effect of radicalizing potentially another generation of Palestinians against their own state. So there's no logic in terms of Israel's security yeah. uh, in the future uh, on this. And it is um, impossible not to be moved listening to Tom Hand talking uh, about his little girl Emily uh, and the torture that he and his family have been feeling since she was taken captive by Hamas. Uh, but I suppose that's a story that's repeated five and a half thousand times over, as you say, by the families of all of the uh, Palestinian children who have been killed over the course of uh, the last seven weeks, let alone those who are injured or missing at this stage. Yeah, the, the actions of Hamas were absolutely horrific. They were terrible. They were shocking. They were, they were evil. Um, the, the idea that you would specifically look to target civilians um, in, you know, in, in kibbutz, at concerts, uh, throughout the uh, life of, of that part of, of, of Israel is absolutely wrong. But, you know, the, the, the response by Israel, the, the, the disproportionate response by Israel has heaped wrong on top of wrong. And, you know, Ireland is a small country, yeah. you know, in international affairs. There's no doubt about that. But one thing that we do have is we have a competency when it comes to peace negotiations. Mm. We have a competency with regards um, that peace processes our own experience here in Ireland over the last 30, 35 years has shown that we can be successful in bringing two sides of a conflict together in negotiations and achieving peace. 
And it, it is my view that, you know, the Irish government should be doing all it can to make a material offer to Israel mm. uh, and to the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank uh, as a facilitator, as a mediator or an interlocutor of some sort in relation to the peace process. That Ireland um, would be seen as an independent peace broker, is it? Well, in, in, in fairness, um, while obviously Ireland has been strong in terms of Israel's wrongdoing, uh, we still have maintained diplomatic relations with Israel. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I still believe that internationally we are seen as a... Um, uh, as a a country that is neutral, a country that uh, doesn't participate in military affairs, a country that has worked mm. against colonialism in the past, a country that has invested significantly in peacekeeping. We have 500 troops uh, in that region okay. at the moment. But we're, we're, um, we're not seen in, uh, as independent in this conflict by Israel, are we? Uh, I think uh, it's generally agreed that Israel's biggest critics are Brazil and Ireland. We heard a minister recently say that the Palestinians can go to the desert or Ireland, as the case may be. And if there is any hope of Ireland being seen as independent, I don't think Petr Tobin or Aintu fed into that, did they? Uh, given that you were calling for the expulsion of the ambassador. Well, first of all, we weren't calling for the expulsion of, of, the, of the ambassador. Uh, what we've asked, we've actually uh, spoken to the Palestinian ambassador and we've called the uh, Israeli ambassador uh, looking to meet uh, with her. And we haven't as of yet called for the expulsion uh, of the Israeli ambassador. Uh, we are militarily neutral, uh, but we're, we're, we're not um, neutral in terms of morality. And, you know, there's no way that a country can stand by and watch what's happening in, in, in Gaza at the moment and say nothing. It would absolutely be wrong. And we should be using every single diplomatic and international power that we have uh, to push for peace. And remember, you know, in, in all of this, in all of this, there has to be a peace process. There has to be some negotiations at the end of this. This has to come to an end somehow. The question is, does it come to an end at 13,000 deaths or 30,000 deaths? Now, the European Union has been at sixes and sevens in terms of its approach to this. Uh, it has been worse than useless in, 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 with regards uh, its approach to this. It did a while ago, but two weeks ago, suggest that there would be, it would facilitate an international peace conference in Europe. But when Israeli diplomats were asked would they participate in this international peace conference, um, they, they said they, they couldn't because they didn't know the detail of it, because the European Union is not providing any detail. And, you know, it is absolutely wrong that there is a, a paralysis in the, in the international community here. We should be making sure that Israel has no excuse not to participate in some level of peace negotiations, because peace is the only solution to this. It, and negotiations are the only way that we can bring about that peace. And I've, I've raised this with the Taoiseach, the Taunashtam, and with Minister Simon Harris. And all of them uh, have admitted that Ireland has made, to date, no material offer to Israel in terms of peace. And when, when I asked, with, would, would uh, the Taunashtam, on his trip to the Middle East, offer uh, Ireland as a peace mediator, uh, the government said no. And strangely enough, the government said, not until there's a ceasefire. But we know that actually... Peace processes have to start before there's a ceasefire to bring about a ceasefire. And if, if we could take anybody's lead in this, it's the lead of John Hume. John Hume started the peace process way before the IRA ceasefires and sat down and did his best to bring people to his side in relation to the peace process. And that's all we're asking for the Irish government to do. I'm not saying the government will be successful. It may not be. And, and, and odds are it won't be successful. But at the very least, we should be 
doing our damnedest to offer every facility we have to the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and to Israel uh, to make sure that they have no excuse uh, in terms of a peace process and may even engage with that, and that could save lives. All right, uh, but uh, you support the position that the Irish government took then uh, in uh, rejecting the calls to expel the ambassador. Yeah, I was t- we were torn over this, um, and we had significant internal debate uh, internally in Aintu on this. There would have been many who, who would have sought for the expulsion of the Israeli ambassador. But after discussions, we decided at this point, if there was anything that we could do as a country to positively engage um, the uh, Israelis and the Palestinian Authority in terms of peace negotiations, we should exhaust that before such a decision would be made in terms of expelling the, the ambassador. Now, don't get me wrong, we mm. abhor what Israel is doing yeah. in Gaza. We actually believe that Ireland should um, should refer Israel to the International Criminal Court. We also believe that you know there's uh, products that are uh, uh, made in the occupied territories or the illegal settlements shouldn't be bought uh, in Ireland or in, in the European Union. We're, we're very you know, strong mm-hmm. against the Israeli aggression here. To, to, to enact that the, legislation that Francis the, Black... Um, uh, the, the experience occupied we have as a country. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I do believe that we should keep diplomatic relations open so that we could uh, make a serious push for peace. And I'm just, I'm amazed mm. that the government haven't done that. Okay, but uh, if the government is not going to propose itself as an interlocutor in uh, this conflict, uh, is the time approaching to expel the ambassador? Uh, because I think it can be argued that any government's first priority should be to its citizens. But if all of the Irish passport holders and their dependents are out, and if Emily Hand as a hostage is out, uh, then is the time to make that statement, do you think? party are not going to give up our pressure on the government uh, to try and offer a, um, a, a themselves and the state as a mediator uh, or a facilitator of peace. I still think that option is open to the government and I think that's the only reasonable option that a country of peace and neutrality such as Ireland uh, can take in, in this situation. Does that experience still Ireland exist in the Irish government? Uh, so we are members of the European Union. The European Union you know, as I said earlier, have been terrible in terms of their, their approach to this. Mm. But there's still an opportunity uh, for the European Union to get it right and to, to start getting strong uh, with uh, Israel. Um, all, the one thing is certain is, if the international community stand idly by, if they allow for Israel to continue, Israel will continue and these numbers will get worse. Okay, does the experience continue to exist within the Irish government uh, that we would have the wherewithal to bring it about a peace settlement? Or is it a case of bringing back Bertie Ahern or Dermot Ahern or whoever the case may be? Well, first of all, I think that the Irish government should be trying to use the, the strength of the European Union to make this uh, happen. But if the European Union doesn't make this happen, we should be offering uh, our facilities itself. And, you know, I, I'm not going to name individuals who could participate in this, but there is Would you name very Jerry and strong competency within the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs uh, in relation to this. Many of the actors that were present in 1998, you know, are, are still alive, still have their experience, and still could be of, of serious use in relation to this. Do you think there would be and a role for Jerry Adams level in of death, That level of destruction, that, you know, where children and, and babies are, are being killed, you know, on a daily basis. M- my instinct is that the country should be pulling out all its stops. It should be making every effort. It should be taking risks in terms of what it, it could do 
in relation to this. But, okay. you know, I, I, I think that the government wants to remain in a safe space. They don't want to take, make an effort to, t- to take risks. And also, in many ways, they've outsourced their foreign policy to the European Union fully. And, and that's a mm. mistake as well. Do Ireland you, has do, a proud do you think... history uh, in relation to foreign policy. And we shouldn't be, you know, uh, outsourcing it to the European Union, especially at a time when the European okay. Union have been able to make a decision at all. All right. Do you think that there is a potential role for Jerry Adams in peace talks? Well, if, if I, 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 as I said, I wouldn't rule anybody out. Jerry Adams has a, a strong history in terms of peace negotiations. Bertie Hearn has a strong history in terms of, uh, of peace negotiations. You know, these individuals are obviously, you know, able individuals. There's no doubt. I wouldn't rule these people out but you know i would start from the fact that we have a department of foreign affairs we have paid officials you know experts who have worked in this space who have experience or at least are not long retired from 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 those roles uh, and they should be they should make up the um the, the the team that at least goes to israel and sets out a process a very clear process in which israel and the palestinian authority can participate in you know, which would start the start them on the road to some types of negotiations. And I've no doubt if Ireland took that step, actually that we would awaken the international community uh, into doing uh, similar. And maybe this could become an international or a UN approach. Um, again, you know, I admit that the chances of success in relation to this are, are probably low. But I just believe in the face of such horrendous death and destruction, every single effort should be made. All right, Padre Tobain, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Thank you. Padre Tobain, leader and founder of AIM2, is a TD for Mead West. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. If you find yourself out of work and suddenly have to, to survive on €220 Euro a week, uh, it's uh, one big challenge, as indeed many of our listeners who were formerly employed by Tara Mines will very well know. Let's speak to Adrian Kane, who is SIP2 Divisional Organiser. And a very good morning to you, Adrian, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. This is about to change or will change in time. The first step is today with uh, the Minister for Social Protection, Heather Humphreys, taking a memo to government which will propose that your job seeker's benefit will be related to what your salary was. 60% of your earnings for the first three months up to €450 a week, 55% uh, for the next three months or a maximum of €375 and then €300 for the final three months, the nine months payment of job seeker's benefit. But you're critical of this as a trade union. Siptu is saying it doesn't go as far as you would like it to go. Yeah. Uh, morning, Michael. Um, and thanks very much uh, for the opportunity uh, to be on your show. Yeah. It, it, can I say in the first place, this is a welcome development. OK. And we, we have been fighting very hard for the introduction of a pay related job seekers benefit uh, model over the last number of years. But it's particularly that the miners in, in Terra Mines have been fighting uh, this over the last number of months since the layoff began uh, in July. So um, I, I think it's a significant achievement that, that we've managed um, to get to a situation where the Minister has brought this uh, to Cabinet. We would make the point, however, that our system is completely out of line with the norm in, in uh, across continental Europe. And whilst this is a positive development, it doesn't go far enough. And what we were looking for 
was that you would have 70% of your earnings for nine months up to a max of €550. And we pitched it at that for a particular reason. If you look at the stats with regard to how people regain employment after losing their job, being laid off or or redundancy or whatever, 50% of people are back within the first three months. 70% of people are back within within a six-month period. So the point that we were making is that the state needs to step up when people need the support from the state at a most critical juncture. Um, so whilst we welcome um, the introduction of it, it needed to go that uh, considerably further, really, to get to that threshold that would protect people through the worst uh, of the time when they immediately lose their job. What would happen under after seven months under your uh, proposal? After nine months, from what had been tabled by the ICTU, mm. that you would go back to what would be €231. Euro. Okay, um, but, but 500, oh, 550 for seven months, what about the remaining two months? No, no, for nine months. Oh, I beg your pardon, I must have misheard you. I'm sorry, Adrian. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So um, for, for the full nine months, that would be very expensive, though, for government. Well, if you look at it in, in comparison with what happens across the EU norm, um, it, it varies considerably, Okay. But probably the, the best uh, looking at um, the examples would be in Belgium, where you'd be on 90% of your income for, for two months and down to 80% after, uh, even after two years. So a lot of the schemes are, are quite generous from our perspective. But really, I think you have to look at where our systems come from. Mm. And I think the, you know, our own social welfare system is, is inherited from the British system. It's kind of very much couched in Victorian values where you can't trust working people and they have to be starved back to work. Um, but, and but, whereas, but when you talk about these increases uh, on the sliding scale that the Minister is proposing now, it has to be paid for. It is more expensive uh, than the existing cost uh, for uh, unemployment benefit for the government. Uh, And uh, the Minister is talking about an increase in PRSI. Uh, So you'd be talking about an additional increase in PRSI, would you not? Or how would you fund it? Well, I think that's that's a very valid point that you, you make, right? But again, you know, being objective in this and conducting a comparative uh, analysis. So workers in this country pay, when you combine the USE and the PRSI, they pay that at a rate of 24.3% of their income. The average across the EU is 21.1%. And workers across the continent are getting a lot more in their social wage as a result of not paying as much as we do so the kind of examples that I was saying, you know, where mm. I talked about Belgium being at 91%, Denmark would be at 82%. Even after a year, you're still at 82%. Mm. What, what you have here, however, so workers are paying more PRSI, but employers are typically paying less PRSI in the model that, that, that we have. So, I mean, what we want to do is to ensure that this is the best country to work in. I mean, I, I've heard in the previous T-shirt could talk about you know, let's make Ireland the best little country to do business in. What we're saying is let's make it the best little country to work in. Mm. And we need to modernise our social welfare system. What we're looking for is not extraordinary. As I say, um, this is to be welcomed, most definitely. It, it's going to be too late for our people in terror minds. 
uh, and we still think that there, there needs to be something done for the North East hmm. um, on a temporary basis. But if it wasn't for the campaign that we've been running, and particularly the miners, we wouldn't have got this far. So I don't want to pour cold water on it. It's certainly to be welcomed. But we need to we need to go significantly further. I know you say that unemployment rates are, are higher elsewhere, but I'm sure you can hear the response already from some employers who will say you're talking about making this the best little country to be unemployed in. Five hundred and fifty euro for nine months—it's a lot of money. Yeah, and again, I think we need to get away from from the, the, this the, the, this view and people who who are on welfare sheets, etc. I mean, the stats just don't bear that up when, when I talk about that. People who lose their job, 50% of them are back in work within three months, 70% within six months. And people need to be protected uh, if they lose their job. That's all that this is about. Okay. I, I take it from what you just said about Tara Mines uh, that there's no hope of uh, the mine reopening before Christmas. Um, I, I w- would think that that's um, a near impossibility uh, at, at this stage. Um, uh, there are a number of things, uh, and we would have had um, a, a meeting with, with Shop Stewards last week, um, and we're in a difficult impasse uh, with the company. There are three things really in the mix from where we see it. Um, we have to have some sort of conclusion of looking at productivity labour efficiencies that's one part of it there has to be some negotiation around redundancy and there has to be um, a matrix developed that allows us to see a clear date when it's open again and those three things need to move forward together that hasn't happened Um, and I think we've reached a, a kind of difficult space with, with our engagement uh, with the company to date. But they're the three mm. key issues, and they all, they all have to move forward simultaneously. Are there time limits in law that define what being temporarily laid off means? Well, again, there, there is probably a better way to answer that question is that you, you can be made redundant after a period of time. But the, the the issue then is with regard to the terms of that redundancy. Um, so you can affect your own redundancy uh, if they if an employer has been able to offer you work within a thirteen week period. Um, and there's a, a few caveats to that as well. But you're talking but about statutory be, redundancy. It would only be statutory redundancy, whereas we would have had. Uh, a previously a collectively negotiated um, re- redundancy package with the company, so th- th- there's there's a big difficulties with that. But like, uh, and we have the difficulty then of people can't get a job with another employer and say, "Well, so you're going to be back. You're going to be leaving me within the next yep. year." Or, but once or the mine reopens, you're gone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. people are in this limbo, and it's getting worse. It's coming up to Christmas. Uh, I mean, you know, the town of Navan, the northeast, is suffering in terms of collapse of income and all the rest of it and we don't have sight uh, of a date of, of return and I think it's getting really really critical at this stage in terms of trying to move and everybody moving together and government has a, a role to play I've always said that in terms of, of us trying to get uh, the, the mind back open at the earliest possible date Okay, and, and is the government fulfilling that role? 
Um, I, I think the government has done a lot of talking um, and I, I think it needs to do much more in terms of being very, very specific of what sort of package it will put on the table. It has talked in the round and we have engaged with, with, with government as well and well-meaning talk and all this, etc. isn't going to get the mine open and they need to be putting concrete offers on the table in terms of energy costs, in terms of uh, royalties, uh, to ensure that it puts us in the best position to get the mine open as early as possible. Okay, Adrian, we live there for the moment, uh, and uh, obviously I uh, imagine uh, at least uh, that people will be hoping uh, that you'll be able to come back uh, with some light at uh, the end of uh, the tunnel going into the new year. But uh, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Adrian Kane, SIP2 Divisional Organiser. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Health and Safety Authority is encouraging farmers over the course of this week to think about and consider their health and well-being. Let's speak to Pat Griffin, who is the Senior Agriculture Inspector with the HSA. Good morning to you, Pat, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You say farmers are at a higher risk of certain health and wellness conditions. I suppose things that we're all at risk of, whether it's heart disease, stroke, back pain or, or stress, uh, but are they are at, a, at a higher risk, do you think, because of the you say it's because of the nature of their work, but do you think that that's to do with how busy they are uh, and that they don't have the time to step back, think about their health and well-being and seek treatment if they feel that there's a problem? Yeah, well we've been doing quite an amount of research along with uh, Chagas as our partners in research in relation to farmer health and well-being and we have found that no matter what you consider, farmers have a far worse health profile than the average person in the country. So they have a much, much worse health profile in relation to cardiovascular health. Um, they have many, many risk factors. They're more prone to stroke. They've also got um, issues around musculoskeletal injury uh, from the type of work they do. And we find that their diet and exercise is very, very poor. And many farmers would think they are living a very healthy life mm. lifestyle. But it's not true. Um, they use machinery all the time. They take very, very little time away from the farm. And we're trying to encourage them uh, through this inspection campaign to think about their health profile for a bit and change one thing, at least, uh, to try to improve their health. Uh, their overall health. Right. Do we know anything about life expectancy? Is it any different to the rest of the population? No, we don't have research on that. Uh, Although, uh, if you think about the number of uh, fatalities that we have in agriculture is quite high and the amount of injury that they suffer. um, Every year we see that there's about 4,500 serious injuries uh, with farmers and half of those would be hospitalised. So that has to have an impact on your overall health and life expectancy, I would, I, I would be sure. So if they have far worse um, you know, risk of stroke and um, cardiovascular health, yeah. I'm sure that has an impact on, on life, life expectancy of mm. farmers. Yeah, I'm sure it does uh, and could lead to some of these other accidents uh, uh, that are are fatal. Uh, As you say, there's always a a number of uh, fatalities on farms over the course of uh, any given year. 
Yeah, absolutely. The other issue that we want farmers to start to focus on would be, um, and I know it's probably not the right time of year to be talking about it, but cancers. But cancers can be caused by several factors between chemical use, exposure to the sun, and, and even stress. And we would like farmers to think about their stress profile. You know, mm. are they getting a good night's sleep? Uh, are they worried or anxious about things all the time? Uh, and this is um, what, what our inspectors will be looking at when they go out on the visits this week. So we have ins- inspectors out this week. They'll be talking to farmers, asking them uh, how are things, how are things going, uh, how are they feeling, and they'll be doing a survey. And we're trying to get a, 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 an impression of where farmers are at the moment and what stress levels they're, they're under. We'd like to encourage farmers to take some time away from the farm if you if you spend all your time in a in a location where you have lots of challenges that you face all the time and you're under pressure all the time, you, you know you don't get a break. So we we encourage farmers to take up a hobby, talk, um, get in, involved in the community, get away from the farm at least once a week, and connect with other people, and that will reduce their stress levels. Absolutely. So but, we're talking about mm. overall health. Both uh, physical yeah. health and mental health. The, the old adage of all work and no play. Uh, you will uh, be on farms uh, carrying out inspections and surveying farmers uh, and checking in with them, uh, uh, if you like. Uh, will you also be looking to see if farmers are compliant uh, with new regulations to do with all train vehicles and quad bikes uh, and uh, now that it's mandatory to wear a helmet using these vehicles? Yeah, from yesterday, these regulations come in, which require farmers to get professional training by a registered training provider uh, to use their quad bike, and secondly, to wear a helmet. Now, the helmet that you would wear is um, based on the where and and uh, uh, where you will be using the quad bike. So, the, the higher the speed and the harder the surface, the higher the specification. So, if farmers are using quad bike a lot out on a paved road, on a public road. We would require the motorbike standard uh, helmet. But if they're using it on softer ground, on the land, predominantly the uh, quad bike helmet, which is uh, required. These these regulations are very, very important, given that there's been 11 fatalities over the last 10 years and many, many more serious injuries and sometimes life-changing injuries for farmers that come off quad bikes. And we hope that over the next five years or so, we will see these types of fatalities and injuries completely disappear from our statistics. And I'm aware that, you know, talking about quad bike fatalities and injuries brings the trauma and, and heartbreak back to a lot of people that have lost people um, using these, these machines. So we, we, we sympathise with people that have been affected. But going forward, I hope that these fatalities will, will just stop happening. Okay, we'll leave it there, Pat. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Thank you very much, Pat Griffin, Senior Agriculture Inspector with the Health and Safety Authority. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the sixth workplace equality survey, which has been carried out by Matrix Recruitment, uh, makes for some disturbing reading and indeed some concern about life in the workplace uh, for many people in this country. Let's hear a little bit more uh, about the findings. Breda Dooley of Matrix Recruitment is on the line. And a very good morning to you, Breda, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. It seems that bullying and racism are commonplace in Irish workplaces. Is that correct? Good morning, Michael. Um, thank you for having me on the show. Yes, this is, um, it's Matrix Recruitment's sixth year running um, the Workplace Equality Survey. 
And the key findings in this survey this time was that 38% of the respondents say that bullying in the workplace is an issue. And three in four workers have witnessed or been a victim of bullying at work. And of those, which is quite high, 39% said they were bullied directly. Right. And the types of bullying um, we, we questioned was that almost half have said they were openly criticised in front of a work colleague and a third blamed for something without justification. Also, other areas of bullying that were highlighted in the survey was um, 29% had disparaging remarks that made about them. Mm. There was extra work piled on to create stress, stress or occlusion from um, work gatherings and verbal abuse. So they were the, like some of the key findings from the bullying sure. okay. side of it. Yeah, but, but they are perceptions, aren't they? Uh, it's not actually true to say or it's not possible to say uh, that uh, a third of people are bullied in the workplace. Yeah. Uh, a third of people <laughs> mightn't like how they've been spoken to, for example, but maybe uh, their productivity has been questionable. Yeah, well, it was, the survey said it was either witnessed or experienced bullying. So it, not everybody might have had bullying, been bullied mm. directly, but they might have witnessed somebody else being sure. bullied as yeah, well. Yeah. Mm. And I suppose what we're, we, we are aware of now is that people are a lot more um, kind of clued in or more educated around what constitutes bullying. So they're, yeah. they're educated a lot more around bullying. Mm. Okay, can you uh, give us some insight into what constitutes bullying? Well, bullying is, as I say, it can be a disparaging remark. It can be extra work piled on to create stress and being openly criticised in front of a colleague or, you know, or verbal abuse. So it comes Mm. in many, many forms. And um, and a lot, half the respondents said that they had been physically, um, I suppose, sorry, had had been bullied physically in the workplace. And virtual bullying was one in five have had been bullied virtually as well. Mm. So our advice, if you are experiencing bullying or harassment, you know, com- you know, go to your manager, go sure. to your HR, mm. um, sta- you know, HR department and ex- explain what's happening to you. And, you know, employers have an onus to ensure that their staff is protected against workplace bullying. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and perception is reality. If you perceive that you're being bullied, then uh, whether it is an actual fact bullying or, or, or not, uh, as far as you're concerned, you're being bullied and that can have a, a detrimental impact on your mental health. And it is good to seek uh, some guidance, advice, mediation, as mm. the case may be. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And it is like there is an, um, I suppose there is an act in place there to protect people, the Safety, Health and Welfare at Work Act. And that is there to protect employees against bullying as well. But um, yeah, and if if somebody does come and with a a bullying complaint, you know, HR or or the the company needs to deal with it. They need to listen because that was one of the things that came out of the survey. 32% felt that the issue wasn't dealt with in an efficient or, you know, Mm. discreet or um, prompt manner, or or they weren't taken seriously. So, you know, if somebody is experiencing, as you say, it could be perception, they need to be listened to and dealt with, you know, in, you know, in a, in a compassionate manner. Mm. And they need to feel that they were listened to. uh, And the company uh, is obliged to make uh, that staff member understand what the problem was, if the problem uh, was at their doorstep. Yes, exactly. It is. Mm. It is on the the employer to make sure that it is investigated properly. Okay, and tell me about racism because we live in a multicultural. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Society and uh, the workplace is no different. Uh, it seems to be pretty prevalent uh, within the workplace. Yeah, racism comes up every year in in our survey and almost two-thirds of employees in Ireland believe racism is a problem in the workplace. Um, it's slightly down from last year, it was 63%, but um, it's still an issue in, in the workplace. And I suppose we, we were kind of asked the question around, you know, from the response, the, the surveys, you know, what what's their kind of view on employers and what they should be doing? So the respondents said that employers... Some of the employers do advocate for diversity, equality and inclusion in their workplace and they believe that employers have responsibility to their staff to offer training on the issues. And only 63% said that um, that they were given proper training in this area. Mm. So there is a little bit of, you know, you know, a gap between intent and action. So we, employers have to make sure that, OK, you have the company policies and procedures in place. Yeah. Mm. That's great. But make sure that your managers or your staff are equipped with the proper training and tools to ensure that if there is racism that they have, they can actually manage it and promote equality in the workplace as well. So that's, there was a gap between, you know, intent and action. So there needs to be more action from employers here. Mm. And explain to me a little bit more about this training. What's involved in that? Is that understanding what racism is or where it stems from or what's involved mm. in training people. Yeah, so, mm. yeah, keep, have proper communication about what racism is. Ensure that there's anti-racism in your value and training actions. And, um, you know, I suppose a proper a proper kind of guideline on what, what racism is and how to deal with it. So, yeah, really good training is, is important from a company. And I know there there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of information out there to help you know, companies on how to to put in proceed, you know, put in the training for it, and there is even companies that you can actually 
go use that will give you the you know can offer a service to to put in procedures and help you with the training too. Mm. Uh, and this uh, is quite a, a significant uh, survey. Uh, you heard from almost one and a half thousand uh, people who are working in uh, this country. Uh, do you believe uh, that people are generally speaking happy with uh, their terms and conditions of employment? Well, is is I suppose I, I, we didn't delve that much into it, but I do believe, yeah, that it is actually improving as we're seeing from the years that we are doing this survey that things are getting a little bit better and that employers are, you know, because I suppose of the different laws and acts are coming into place and they are putting in, a, in really good procedures to stamp out, you know, any kind of inequality in the workplace. There is still a couple of good gaps there that are still there, like on, um, I suppose, on um, maybe women not seen, still seen as the home homemaker and they're not getting the same promotional opportunities. We're still seeing racism really? as, a, mm. as a big issue coming into the, the workplace as well. So we still have a lot to do, but it is, I will say, from the six years we're doing, it is getting better. Okay, very good. We leave it there, Breda. Thank you for joining Joining us on the programme today, Brita Dooley of Matrix Recruitment. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us. I'll start with a, an email today uh, from David Kearney, uh, which was copied t- to us, but written to Peter Fitzpatrick, independent TD for Loud and East Mead, after his interview on this programme yesterday. And David, in his correspondence to Peter Fitzpatrick, says, I find your illogical defence of the ambassador of an undemocratic apartheid genocidal Israel and over-the-top praise of Michal Martin's sickening opportunistic visit to the Palestinian-occupied territories to rub shoulders with Israeli war criminals. Very disturbing. When did diplomacy ever work with Israel to stop listening to the UN and the world decades ago? What is your stubborn stance going to achieve? Look where we are. We are in the middle of the Israeli indiscriminate massacre of millions of innocent and people because of people like you harping on about diplomacy to allow Israel continue to commit war crimes with impunity. Netanyahu and his lackeys must be imprisoned. His bragging about how easily he can manipulate US presidents and the world is contemptible and it sadly looks like he has you in his corner too. You don't deserve a seat in government of a democratic country when you support this evil Netanyahu apartheid regime and your ridiculous praise for our supporting it will hopefully fall flat and see you and Fianna Fáil lose all seats in any future governance in this country. Thank you indeed David for copying us in that very interesting email that you sent to Peter Fitzpatrick and I take it that the same applies to all Fianna Fáil TDs, all Fine Gael TDs, all Green Party TDs uh, and indeed Peter Tobin and all members of his AIN2 party after uh, his uh, comments uh, this morning uh, about supporting diplomacy over the idea of expelling the ambassador. Tony in County Loud uh, says Michael the government would want to, to be careful introducing this new rate of social wealth it has to be realised that a payment of this size would remove the urgency on both sides to resolve and return to normal working. This also applies 
to the example given by your speaker when he says that 75% who lose one job eagerly seek re-employment within three months. Again, the motivation and urgency of that situation would dissipate when someone can take comfort from the fact that they've nine months of almost full wages with no working commitment and could use the sabbatical to see the world if savings allowed. I think it is a proposal fraught with unintended consequences. Well, thank you very much indeed, Tony, for your text to the programme as well. Our uh, phone number, if you want to ring us, is 0419832000. This is, of course, if you want to make comment on the programme today, you can ring us and tell us what's on your mind. 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Electoral Commission has recommended uh, that Ireland's additional and 14th MEP would be allocated to the Midlands North West constituency. Uh, you've probably been hearing this news, but it, it means that we would have a fifth MEP, an extra, going from four to five in this constituency. It's a massive constituency. The recommendation is that each constituency should have between three and five MEPs uh, and uh, in order uh, for the Midlands North West constituency to go from four to five MEPs, the Commission has recommended that the constituency would be made all the bigger with the addition of Leash Offaly. Uh, it is a, a massive piece of ground, but it has political parties pretty excited. Let's speak to the chairperson of the Green Party, Pauline O'Reilly, who's on the line with us. Senator O'Reilly, good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. You're hoping to take that seat, I think, are you? Good morning, Michael. Yes, indeed, I am. And I know I've been on speaking previously about nature restoration law, for instance, um, which is something that was passed at the European level. Um, But it was an uphill battle to get the other political parties in Ireland um, to back it. And uh, and we did in the end. And it just it changed the course of things. But that was Greens pushing the agenda um, at a European level. So I really feel very strongly that we need our first Green in this area. Mm. Um, we have one in Dublin. We have one in, in the other constituency in Ireland South, but we've never had a Green in Midlands Northwest. So that's why I'm running. But I think it's, you know, I think, I think the interesting thing as well about this announcement is the Commission could have gone one of two ways. It could have put in a fourth um, constituency where we would have seen two three-seaters and then two four-seaters. But from our point of view, having a five-seater means that you get more diversity in the parties and and in the candidates that are elected. Is it not much too big of a constituency for anybody to truly represent? It's a very large constituency, don't get me wrong. It's a a massive constituency, uh, which is why I announced Mm. before um, because I I wanted to get that groundwork done. Um, But if it was only three MEPs in in a smaller area, what should end up happening is it would be two parties, maybe three max per constituency, and you wouldn't have that kind of diversity of views. I was going to read Loud the me there obviously in this constituency I was going to read yeah. out all of the counties but then I thought we're finished at 11 <laughs> and uh, is there the time there's 16 counties in this uh, or 16 areas at least if you include Galway City If you include the the, um, the council certainly uh, there's 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 now um, 
15 counties Yes, because it's the inclusion of Offaly and Leash Leash, in it as Mm -hmm. well in Mm -hmm. order to get that extra seat. Mm. And there's no doubt that that it's large. But I mean, if you look at some other European countries, they don't have any constituencies. They just have you know, the whole country and the MEPs for that whole country. Okay, so we're, we're, we're here six... it does give you an opportunity to, to at least represent a somewhat smaller area than an entire country. Okay, we're six months out from voting uh, on European elections and local elections for that matter. But it's quite possible, isn't it, that the EU nature restoration law is going to be one of the main topics uh, because farmers believe that they won the argument And now they believe that perhaps they've lost the fight or some of the fight and that the wool has been pulled over their eyes uh, because of re-wetting, which has somehow come back into the final draft of uh, the legislation. Well, I I mean, I I don't think that there is is any um, mistaking that, um, you know, everything was followed as it should have been. There were a massive amount of amendments um, and certainly there were some changes, but I believe that those, all of those changes were to the benefit of farmers. Mm. Um, and some of the words that I suppose people were, were worried about, some elements, and it's just given greater clarity, even though I don't believe there's anything to be worried about, um, quite frankly. I no, think that and that's, and that's I think why, it's the opposite, that, yeah. that the wool was pulled over people's eyes because of politicking that somehow there was something to fear. Okay. I mean, Ireland is actually globally um, well recognised for having really good um, agri-environmental schemes that farmers sign up to in their droves. And this gives the ability to do more of those agri-environmental schemes so that farmers get paid and also nature is protected. And I think that's in everybody's interest, you know. Yeah, but um, you have a very we... bad reputation with farmers, do you not? Uh, and I mean, I think you'll hear an awful lot of farmers say that come the next general election, the Greens will be voted uh, out of government because of what they're doing to the country uh, and because of the EU nature restoration law and how farmers feel about re-wetting and green policies. Uh, this will play into the hands of the big names that we've been hearing about. Michael Fitzmaurice, obviously, as an independent if he decides to run and uh, and likewise with Barry Cowan uh, in the heart of rural Ireland uh, as a Fianna Fáil rep. Well, I mean, I'd take issue with what the Greens are doing to farmers. I mean, what exactly does anybody think that is uh, other than other parties saying everything is the Green Party's fault? I mean, we didn't invent climate change. That's It's just a reality. And it's a reality being faced with people on the ground who are closest to nature mm that things are flooding. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of farmers have, don't believe well, that though. I mean, and well, I'm not arguing the point with you. That's a scientific yeah. fact and it is correct. But it is also equally correct to say that a, a lot of farmers would disagree uh, and say, when I was growing up, uh, we'd the hottest summers you can imagine. When I was growing up, we the wettest winters you could imagine and so on. I actually think that the majority of farmers that I know, and I know a lot of farmers, um, are very much on board and know that the climate science is real. Um, And what we really need to do is to ensure that people still have livelihoods and that we're protecting farming into the future. And most young people know that um, food security depends on getting this right for farmers as well. So I think there's a huge amount of misinformation, but 
I don't believe because I travel and I meet people, I don't believe that there is the level of animosity that is reported on media because it, it just doesn't come across to me like that. Um, but I do think that there are politicians who try to make hay out of it and to create a battle. Now, it's 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 quite clear to me that um, people have been let down for a really long time and the Greens have come into government and provided schemes and so, tried to sort out some of the mess that was already there. And mm. so we do have the new forestry scheme, for instance. People are signing up to it in their droves. Um, we also had the acre scheme it initially, um, and that's for biodiversity on farmland. Initially, uh, there were 30,000 places for farmers. Yeah. 46,000 farmers signed up to it. When it comes to organics, when we went into government, 1% was organic in Ireland and now it's up to 4%, nearly 4%, and we'll mm. certainly hit our targets. But you want so, us, to, you want us uh, uh, to cut back on the national hair, don't you? Uh, and, I, and, uh, and there is the prospect uh, of Bordnamona land, let's say, being re-wetted, which you would fully support, even though it, it may uh, straddle a, a farmer's private land. Listen, I, I think there's a huge amount of misinformation. Like, no, nobody has been forced to go into organic farming. Farmers wanted supports and they've got supports and that's why they're signing up to it. And when you go into orga- organic farming, you get a higher, um, you get, you get um, higher income for a lower um, amount of, of, like a lower herd. And that's ultimately, there's, it's all completely voluntary. So there's nothing to say we're just trying to get rid of this thing. It's diversity. Of, t- of farming, it's providing opportunities so that people can voluntarily sign up to it, and in the end of the day, it's protecting the future for our children. And but you, but you accept the perceptions, wants. do you? I, I accept the perceptions because I hear them on media all the time. Yeah. But I don't, mm. I don't accept that it that it uh, that it's anything other than misinformation in many cases. And in relation to nature restoration law, it's two years of consultations will go into it to see how it's going to work to support farmers. Now, we could come and say at the start, this is what we're going to do, but would that be right? No. It's to say, how is it going to work for farmers? How much payments? And in Europe, what we'll be trying to do, and certainly I'll be trying to do, is to ensure that we get a separate amount of funding to fund those schemes that farmers will want to sign up to. And that's what this is about. It's about restoring nature, paying people to do it, and people signing up to it mm. voluntarily, as they have in their droves. But in, people are, in pe- relation to the agri people remain schemes. people remain suspicious. They worry that state land will be re-wetted next to their land, or if the state can't reach its targets, it's going to have to force farmers to re-wet lands. Well, uh, look, we can go into what exactly re-wetting is. I, I think it's a I think it's an unfortunate t- term because it isn't actually wetting things. It is. It, it is um, moving the water table up, mm. so it doesn't become unusable, the land. But here's the other added benefit. Like, we've seen floods, and, mm. you know, we've seen them in Louth, we've seen them in Galway, um, in this constituency, and we've seen them elsewhere, we've seen them in the north. And those floods are based on um, lands being drained over decades, and when the land is drained, it increases the speed of the water and comes into towns at a much higher rate. It also means that there isn't a soakage that there should be within townlands. 
and you end up getting flooding. Like, that's one of mm. the reasons. And we're hearing this morning um, that global warming is approaching three degrees this century. I mean, the, 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 there is no well, toast. Practically, it's practically unlivable in, you yeah. know, if it does that. It's practically unlivable in. It's certainly not somewhere you can grow food. So people, you know, uh, that, uh, that I know, know this is a reality. They're anxious about it. They're obviously anxious about, um, about you know, their incomes. And... It's in. It's absolutely not in my interests to um, to you know make farmers suffer. Like, what, mm. why would I want to do that as as a human being? It's about trying to come up with solutions that you know. And farmers have been failed in the past, and, well, and I don't believe yeah. that that's right. And that's why. You know, that's why you go into politics, but whether, whether, is to do the right thing. But whether you're punishing farmers or, or not, uh, it seems as though you've managed to alienate farmers as a, a political party. The Green Party is not liked uh, to a large degree uh, by people in farming because of a perception that you're anti-farmers, you're anti-agriculture, you're anti-farming. Well, well as, as all of the things that I've just pointed out mm. are, like, they're facts. But you've got so, to win. You've got to win that argument, don't you? Well, and that's why that's why I'm I'm speaking about it. Um, but if people just keep repeating, people don't like you. People don't like you. I mean, uh, like I can't. That's not an argument. You yeah. know, I'm mm. arguing based on the facts. And there are plenty of people that do vote green, and there are plenty of people who want to vote green. And um, there is also plenty of people that know and they see the reality in our towns, like I do, where things can't go on the way they are and there's positive changes that happen when you provide opportunities for people um, and that's that's all we're trying to do and um, I think what's really interesting is if you look at the EPA survey that came out last year which was about people's attitudes and it found that just as many people in rural Ireland as in urban Ireland are worried about climate change so what we can either do is say let's do nothing and let's keep worrying and let's see our lands flooding and or we can do something which is about trying at a European level to get more funding for, for Ireland for these schemes um, and to restore nature so that we're having you know, natural uh, methods of preventing this flooding and we're bringing back nature. And, and I think that the majority of people want, excuse me, want mm-hmm. that and they don't want to just ignore the problem. And um, of course, it's going to create anxiety. But if anybody thinks that, you know, the Green Party invented climate change, I think, you know, like they just need a reality check because it's happening regardless. So um, I, I would think that a lot of people want people who have solutions and people who are hardworking and people who are honest. And that's what I am. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Senator Pauline O'Reilly is chairperson of the Green Party. Michael Reed on LMFM. I'm sure you're listening to the ads like all of us uh, suggesting you go and get vaccinated. COVID vaccines are available. The flu vaccine is available. We're coming into the winter months. Special categories of people are advised in particular to get vaccinated. Uh, I got vaccinated uh, myself last Thursday. I had put it off, I have to admit, for a while, um, but I decided I'd do it eventually. A a pharmacy close to me uh, were offering walk-in vaccines. So I I walked in and 
I was the only person there looking for a vaccine. Somebody did come in after me. Uh, and I was very surprised by that, but I'm really not surprised at all looking at the figures uh, this morning. Uh, the uptake has been very, very low. As an example, uh, HSE staff, the vast majority have not got a COVID-19 booster, uh, close to 90%, that is. Just 11.5% of HSE staff have got their booster jab. Let's speak once again to Professor Anthony Staines, who's Professor of Health Systems in DCU. Good morning to you, Anthony. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I hope we're not going to have the kind of talk that we had about COVID previously. I hope that we're not going to be worried about getting terribly, terribly sick or, or dying from it. Uh, but none of us want a, a little bit of COVID or a little bit of flu. Uh, they're very debilitating uh, conditions. Uh, are you surprised by the low uptake? And it's not just HSE staff who are not uh, availing of uh, these boosters. It is disappointing uh, because certainly healthcare staff are fairly high risk of getting flu, getting COVID. And, and right now, influenza levels are relatively low, but the, in, the peak influenza season is often in a couple of weeks' time. It's often you know, December, January is, is peak influenza. It was certainly the case last year. The COVID is running at fairly high levels. It's around 500 cases reported last week. And there's a huge outbreak of what they call RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, which is mostly make affects uh, babies and small children. And there were about 450 cases last week. And the children's hospitals are telling us that they're full to the brim. Mm. And the adult hospitals are busy with COVID, with flu. Mm. And it's, these are not, they're not completely preventable but we can certainly reduce the number of cases substantially. Mm. Uh, and every year people will die from flu. They will, yes. Yeah. Uh, and you hear that, on the other hand, people say, oh, I, I, I have the flu. Uh, and you, you, you can automatically say you don't because you're standing in front of me going about your business. You just are not able to function like that when you have the flu. It, it really is a serious thing to catch, isn't it? It's a nasty, nasty condition. It'll floor you for a week. There's a fairly high rate of, you know, long drawn out symptoms which can last for months and occasionally much longer. Not not as much as is the case with COVID, fortunately. But uh, flu is not not a disease to be taken lightly, and every year a significant number of people will die from from influenza, and that's what we're trying to stop. Okay. So that's why we need to vaccinate healthcare staff particularly, because they're at, at risk themselves, but they're also at risk of spreading it to you know, very vulnerable people. There's a lot of people in hospitals who are at pretty high risk if they're unfortunate enough to get flu. And the, the vaccine is something effective we can do. There's a lot of work mm. on cleaning air as well, which is you know, perhaps not uh, as it should be. But the vaccines are here, the vaccines are available. And candidly, the uptake is, is quite disappointing. You know, uh, and we, I'm we a bit learned, shocked by those figures. Well, yes, and let's talk about those figures because we learned a, a, a lot uh, about um, the way these viruses work uh, because of COVID and how people with underlying illnesses and in older age groups are, are more vulnerable. Uh, and the figures that we're looking at today uh, say that 18% of people aged between 50 and 69 have got a COVID-19 booster. The same percentage have got the flu vaccine. Uh, but that does not 
not uh, follow on with people over the age of 70. More people have got the COVID-19 booster, 49% of that group, but 59% have got the flu vaccine. So fewer have got the COVID vaccine or booster. Uh, Why do you think that might be? I think there is a level of concern about getting both vaccines together. Now, the evidence is, is fairly clear that they actually work, they, they work well when taken together and they may work better. And particularly for older people, the, the hassle of going to the pharmacy twice to get the vaccination does put people off, which is why there's a lot of emphasis on giving both, var- both vaccines at the same time. Mm. Uh, I had it done a few weeks ago. Yeah. And so the, the effect for most people are very, very minor indeed. Yeah. You typically get a sore arm. Uh, if you take a paracetamol, that will, will get better. It goes away in a day mm. and you're done. That's you sorted. But uh, so, so some people can spend a day in bed not feeling well uh, as well uh, and that can't be dismissed either. No, it can't. Uh, people react differently to the vaccine. But to be honest with you, the, the evidence is that the the more severe vaccine side effects are like the effect of the actual disease, yep. but not nearly as bad mm. and not nearly as common. Okay. And, you know, in a situation where flu, flu is, is spreading widely, COVID is spreading widely, you have a fairly high chance of getting it. And right. in that situation, it's, it's absolutely worth getting vaccinated. Right. Well, that's why that's why I got the vaccine so as not to get it. As I said at the outset, I got both vaccines last mm. Thursday. You got your vaccines, Professor Staines, a, a couple of weeks ago. But does that yeah. mean that we're immune? Because one of the things we heard an awful lot about uh, during the COVID years was herd immunity. If so few people are getting vaccinated, are we still vulnerable? Okay, so the biology of COVID and biology of flu are such that we don't develop herd immunity to either. We develop a fair degree of protection from the worst effects. So what vaccination does brilliantly is reduces the the death rate from both diseases, particularly from COVID. It reduces substantially the risk that you will get into hospital and get seriously sick. And there is now fairly good evidence that COVID vaccines reduce the risk of long COVID. And that's taken a while to become apparent, but it is apparent. It, it does probably reduce the risk of infection somewhat, but it doesn't protect against infection. Not like me, you know, the measles vaccine, the mumps vaccine you got as a child, they protect against infection in the case of measles for your whole life. In the case of mumps up into early adult life, um, but the COVID and flu vaccines are not like that. What they do is they substantially reduce the severity of disease and they probably reduce the risk of getting disease somewhat. Okay. But they don't stop it. Okay. And that's just yeah. biology. Okay. That's biology of the viruses. Uh, and uh, I take it it's probably true to say that uh, the majority of people at, at the stage have not got uh, both vaccines, uh, the COVID-19 booster and the flu vaccine. Uh, would you encourage them to think about that? I'd encourage them to do it. I mean, most, most people have had at one or two doses of the COVID vaccine at this point in the country. And that does provide useful protection. We don't know for how long, but probably a reasonable length of time against the worst effects, which is great. But this is an opportunity to update your vaccination, 
to increase your protection and bring in your protection against the, the current version of flu that's doing the round. Because flu changes, it doesn't change every year, but it, many years there are new strains of flu out and the, the vaccine is changed to meet new strains of flu. So we, we don't really want to have a bad flu season. You know what the hospitals are like now. Mm. You've probably seen the IMO trolley watch figures. Mm. There, there are serious problems across the country. It, we can do without a flu, a major flu outbreak in December and January. It would make a big difference. Okay, we'll leave it there. Professor Staines, thank you very much indeed, as always, thank for you joining very much, us. Michael. Always a, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you indeed uh, for uh, that uh, invaluable advice, I think. That's uh, Professor Anthony Staines, Professor of Health Systems in DCU. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Laura Martin of Dundalk Garda Station joins us for the report this week. And good morning to you and thank you for joining us uh, with this list of incidents uh, to report on this week. We're going to start with a, a peculiar uh, crime, uh, a very unusual one, at least uh, in the Dundalk area and surrounding areas uh, where people have broken down on the M52 only to find that their car ends up being stolen. Uh, tell us a little bit more, please. Yeah, good morning, Michael. In recent weeks, members of Angarda Siakana attached to Dundalk and outside stations, Hackball's Cross, received a number of reports of unauthorised takings of mechanically propelled vehicles along the M52 and surrounding areas. It was then further established through inquiries that these vehicles had broken down or were in need of a service and were awaiting tow trucks. It appears that the tow truck that arrived was not um, a legitimate tow truck. If people in the Dundalk area and surrounding areas um, are asked to be vigilant when requesting roadside assistance, to ensure that the drivers are legit when the vehicles attend. If in doubt, they should definitely err on the side of caution and contact their local guard stations to confirm. Okay. A bizarre story, uh, but uh, undoubtedly there's a word of warning in there for many of our listeners uh, as well. Uh, We're going to go back almost a month in time to the 23rd of October for the next report. Uh, And this uh, is a number of incidents that happened in Kells. I I take it this was a well-planned operation. Five pubs had beer delivered to them early in the morning and five pubs had beer stolen from them shortly after it was delivered. 33 kegs in total. Yeah, Michael, on the morning of the 23rd of October this year, between the hours of 7am and 7.35am, 33 beer kegs were stolen from outside five pubs in Kells. This was shortly after they were delivered. The vehicle appears to be a white high roof for transit in and around 2012 registration. There were two males involved and the thefts happened on Farrell Street, Back Street, Cannon Street and Cabin Road. If anyone has any information, could they please contact Kells Garda Station on 046 928 or the confidential line, which is 1800 666 111. 
Next to Dundalk, where Gardaí would be keen to hear from anybody who witnessed uh, a road traffic incident uh, towards uh, the beginning of this month. Yes, Michael. On the 3rd of this month, a three-vehicle traffic collision occurred on the N52 in the Coase Road in Dundalk. This junction is opposite Dutchies Fitness. It occurred between the hours of 3pm and 3.15pm. Gardaí are appealing for any witnesses which may have dash cam footage or observed the collision occur. Gardaí at Dundalk Garda Station can be contacted on 042-938-8400 or once again the confidential line on 18006661111. And we'll stay in Dundalk where Gardaí are appealing for information about a vehicle that was set on fire last Wednesday. Yeah, Gardaí and Dundalk are investigating a criminal damage to a vehicle in Dundalk where the vehicle was set on fire on the 15th of the 11th this year at 01.30 hours in the morning. The incident occurred outside the Simon community at Barrack Street. If there are any witnesses or anyone that has CCTV, please contact Dundalk Gardaí on 042-938-8400. Or once again, the confidential line one eight zero zero six 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 one one one. Okay, next to a charity event and a fundraiser for Special Olympic athletes. Yeah, at Cloherhead Beach on the second of December at two p.m. The polar plunge event is taking place. You can register online or on the day. Sign in and registration occur on the day between. 1pm and 1.45pm and that's the 2nd of December. This event is part of Angarda Shiakana's commitment to the law enforcement torch run for the Special Olympics. This is a very worthwhile cause and we are looking forward to meeting everyone who comes out and supports us as we aim to raise as much money as we can for our Special Olympics athletes. Individual registration is €15 or groups of 5 plus are free to register with a minimum fundraising target of €25 Euro per group. OK, and I'm sure you'll take donations from people who don't take the plunge. Of course, Michael, <laughs> yes. And just just before we yeah. go, I'm not sure if Santa's hat was handed in after the light switched on yet. Um, he seems to have lost his hat in Dundalk there. I believe he's put out a media appeal yourself. So okay. maybe if anybody comes across that, they might hand that in. OK, well, I don't know. I might try it on if I find <laughs> it, but I'm sure Santa would do it, uh, having it on uh, because that big day is fast approaching. Thank you very much indeed, Garda. Laura Thank Martin you, Michael. Thank you. Dundalk Bye-bye. Garda Station. Thank you indeed. Now, before we leave you today, let me bring you some more of the comments coming to us. Paddy and Kells in touch with us about the calls to expel the Israeli ambassador from Ireland. He doesn't think uh, that it would serve any real purpose. What kind of message would that be sending out, he asks. If we go down that road, why not expel the Russian ambassador as well over what's happening in Ukraine? These calls for expulsion are not a good idea, Paddy says. Sam in touch with us about bullying in the workplace, saying he would fully agree that anyone who feels that they're being bullied should report what's happening to HR and ask them to act on their part. Any company worth its salt should have a team of people there to provide support and advice to workers if they are being mistreated or not getting their voices heard. Brian in touch with us about the European elections and the additional MEP for Ireland. He says the constituency that we're in now is too large. It essentially runs from Clorahead to Clifford. 
Thank you, Brian, for that. That's a, a very good way of putting it. From Clorherhead to Clifford. Uh, and it's too vast an area for the MEPs to be able to keep on top of all of the issues. He believes it would be much better if it ran on a north-south axis instead of east-west. Thanks uh, very much, as I say, Brian. Somebody else uh, in touch with us uh, about vaccines. I hear Anthony Staines on there talking about COVID vaccines. Uh, he's talking a whole load of horse manure, says our caller, who doesn't sign their text uh, but knows much better than uh, the Professor of Health Systems in DCU. Fair play to you. Um, I hope you don't get COVID. Um, the rest of us will be getting a vaccine. It's that same old conversation, isn't it, with the flat earthers uh, that uh, still are out there. Anyway, um, somebody else says uh, there aren't enough Green Party uh, politicians in the country. Uh, they're going to be the party of the present and the future, not just in Ireland, but worldwide, says a Green Party supporter, I'm sure. Thank you indeed uh, for that. I'm afraid we've run out of time. Uh, we'll try and come to some more comments that we didn't come to on tomorrow's programme. But that's it for today. Maggie McGuire, Research. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilliam. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.